Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. This week's episode is sponsored by my upcoming book, The Influencer Economy. Make sure you check out theinfluencereconomy.com for more information. The book is coming out this winter at the end of January. I'm so excited to share with you the stories of maker, creator, entrepreneurs launching the next big things in media. I've reverse engineered the careers of people like Bill Simmons, Mark Marin, Hannah Hart, and other online creators for business stories that we can all learn from. Sign up for my email list at influencereconomy.com. Hey, all, this is Ryan Williams. Welcome to Stories from the Influencer Economy. Each week, I profile a maker, creator, or geek launching the next big thing in media. This episode is part of a new series I'm launching, and it's called The Prequel. It's the pre-story for someone famous or well-known on the internet. You may have seen Troy Carter pop up this season on ABC's Shark Tank. He's become a part-time shark on Mark Cuban's show. He also is formerly the manager of the pop icon Lady Gaga and currently manages talent like John Legend and Megan Trainer. He also is well-known in the investing community as he's based in Los Angeles and has invested in startups like Spotify, Lyft, and Dropbox. For Troy's prequel, he was born in West Philadelphia, attending and dropping out of West Philadelphia High School at the age of 17. He started rapping in a group called Too Many, which eventually failed, and then went on to work for Will Smith's production company under the tutelage of the well-known producer James Lasseter. He eventually moved to Los Angeles to work in entertainment under James, but was subsequently fired after a series of missteps and told he needed to get his act together, and he packed his bags up and was kicked out of L.A. to go back to Philadelphia. He's now known in many circles as a talent manager as well as an investor, has connections in Silicon Valley and Los Angeles, working with both venture capitalists, startup founders, as well as talented artists like John Legend. The prequel starts when we get into his old school days of promoting shows and clubs living in West Philadelphia. Make sure to check out all our archives at InfluencerEconomy.com. And if you're listening on iTunes, please hit the subscribe button and leave an honest review. Yeah, well, um, I'm founder, founder CEO of Adam Factory. Uh, the core of our business is, you know, music business where, you know, we focus on uh, talent representation. Uh, we also have a music label and music publishing company. Um, and then we, we, one of our sister companies is called AF Square, where we invest in early stage technology companies. And, um, and then we also have a branding unit called AIDEA that's uh, a brand incubator. Okay. And so you're CEO and are you the single founder? Yes, single founder. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you got here through music in a lot of ways in Philadelphia. Yep. And uh, I, I know it's cliche, but you said that you, West Philadelphia born and raised. Exactly. Right. West Philly born and raised. Um, and can <laughs> in you, the blood. And so how long have you been in L.A. for, for this stint? I've uh, been in L.A. for about 11 years now. Okay. Yeah. And you like it? Love it. Love it. Love it? Yeah. It took, took a lot of getting used to, but, you know, now, now that I'm settled, I, uh, I couldn't see myself moving back anywhere where it's anything, get, where it gets below 40 degrees. How funny is that, right? I have a friend in London, and I was saying that I couldn't live in London because of the weather. Yeah. And he's like, look, you are really desensitized. Yeah. Everywhere in the world has weather but L.A. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even at 9 a.m., I'm like, it's 80 degrees outside. Yeah, I'll take it. So then in Philadelphia, like, you, when you spoke last time was that you'd 
you moved to LA previously with the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yeah, you know, I moved to LA. I was living here a couple times before I finally, you know, stayed. Uh, you know, just I think being from Philly and spending a lot of time in New York, I really loved the city. And, um, you know, and just, uh, you know, and lo- I love condensed cities and, you know, where you can walk down the street, you know, and uh, jump on public transportation if you need to. And um, and L.A. was, you know, totally different from any place I ever lived before. So it took some getting used to. And then it, w- when you came out for, first of all, Philadelphia, like the roots are from there. Boys to Men. Yeah. Did you all go to the similar high school? Well, all of us grew up in the same neighborhood. So, you know, um, Tariq from, uh, I mean, Amir from The Roots, you know, he lived on Delancey Street, down the street from the church that, I, that you know, we grew up in. You know, Boys to Men, we came up, you know, uh, th- those guys lived five minutes from us, so I knew those guys coming up. So uh, Left Eye from TLC, you know, um, you know, Jazzy Jeff lived about six blocks from me. So, you know, just Philadelphia is a small, you know, not, not a huge town anyway. And a lot was happening in, in, in West Philly. So, you know, it's within five minutes you could be anywhere within within West Philly. Is so everybody kind of knew is each other. something in the water there? You know what? It's, it's, it's always, amazing that such a condensed area has so much creative talent. It's always been a big musical town, you know, big, big music town, you know. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with the local local radio in Philly, um, the local uh, live scene in Philly as, Philly as well. And um, but, you know, listening to stations like WDAS, you know, which was like, you know, one of the pioneering um, stations in black music, you know, throughout the country. It just, you know, you you grew up with which what with really rich musical taste, you know, and um, and then also I think we grew up in an era where music wasn't um, wasn't really segregated, you know, so uh, pre MTV. There was uh, Friday night videos, and you know you used to watch Prince, Blondie, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, you know all of these type of acts, Michael Jackson, um, and you know so it wasn't just urban music; it was all types of music. And I think being able to have th- those sort of references kind of made that generation of music, you know, really, really rich in Philly. And uh, so is that is that the music you listen to, like? Growing Prince, up, Prince and Run DMC. We listened, yeah. It just we were all over the place, just in terms of taste. Grow, growing up, and then you know, m- my personal love was you know a love a love around hip hop music, though. And what was the the first work you had in the music industry? Was it in hip hop? Uh, yeah, first work I had uh, was in hip hop. Yeah. And what'd you do? Passing out flyers was probably my first job that I almost got paid for, but didn't quite get. I was supposed to get paid for, but the guy went There's out of the back of money door at one point. Exactly, I, I got used to people kind of going out of the back door. Right, where'd that guy go? Yeah, exactly. Well, he's my hundred dollars. Exactly. Well, it was more like five, ten bucks. But and so what? Uh, what 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 age was that? High school? Yeah, that was high school. Probably you know maybe seventh seventh eighth grade. And then you know we used to throw parties at my you know my friends my friends had um, a speakeasy in the, in in the basement of their house their father built. And um, he was a doctor by day, and you know um, and at night he had this after hours illegal spot. But we we promoted parties there from about nine until midnight or so and then after midnight the adults came in so and this is a speakeasy with the door that you open up like no you have to know a password yeah pre- pretty pretty much Dude, that's, yeah. a, that's classic yeah, pretty much and so these are this is you in high school then this is junior high going into high school and so you have like djs playing and yeah well I, I i i went between it was three of us but i we all kind of rotated between dj doorman 
uh, you know, uh, cleaning crew. In someone's basement. Yeah, in the basement. It's amazing. But it was like, you know, if you went downstairs, it turned into, you know, full-fledged nightclub. And that's all like word of mouth because there's no, oh, yeah. no Facebook, no email. No, exactly, exactly. And so you built up a buzz around it and people were coming on the weekends. Yeah, exactly. And then when, what was your first job that you you realized like this is for me like was that it or um you know it, you know i i think at a, at a at a young age i learned um you know one to be able to 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 make money you know just you know as a kid if i wanted sneakers i couldn't go you know hey mom i want the, you know these air jordans or anything like that or whatever just because we didn't have the money to 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 be able to afford those so you know being able to go and work and being able to go and buy things for myself at a young age so whether it was shoveling snow uh in the winter whether it was cutting grass you know in the in the summer whether it was you know us promoting parties you know having a little paper route you know so doing whatever i could do to be entrepreneurial at a, at a really young age right before so i knew what an entrepreneur before that was. word it was a french word <laughs> no, back it, then it, it, it didn't it, even exist exactly and so then how did you get connected with uh will smith and the fresh prince of bel air well we we had uh we had a rap group as kids you no know way. Uh, yeah and, what was it uh, called? It was called Too Too Many. Okay. And it was me and two of my best friends. T-O. It was the number two T-O-O many. <laughs> and then uh, one of the guys in my group, who's still one of my, was still one of my best friends to this day, um, said, you know what, if we ever meet, uh, if we ever meet well, Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, they're going to give us a, a record deal. Of course. So, you know, we, when we... Isn't that how you all think, though? No, exa- exactly. Age? We stalked them for like a year. are different than year. everyone else. We were so different. But, you know, we stalked them for like a year. And then finally, we met them at a recording studio. You know, we used to hop the L train, go down to the recording studio, wait outside. Nobody would let us in. And finally, one day, somebody let us in. After a year. After almost a year, yeah. And we ended up um, meeting those guys, and they kind of took us under their wing. Too too many? Yeah, exactly. And were you still performing when they took you under their wing? Yeah, and then we found out really quickly that we weren't that talented. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to you know, just really be around music, learn about the business. And um, James Lasseter, who uh, who was Will's business partner and manager, t- took me under his wing and kind of, you know, t- helped me down from there. And that's when you decided that this is going to be, you weren't going to perform? Your career was it, over it, it, as it, a rapper? Exactly. But the business side was what was... It, it was really it was really attractive and, and kind of called my name. And then you came to L.A. with them on the show? Yeah, so when Will was doing Fresh Prince, I would come out here, work on the show um, with James as James's assistant. Okay. And then... Uh, so you're paying your dues at that point. Exactly. Then Will, you know, they started a company called Overbrook Entertainment, and I was uh, James's assistant throughout that, throughout, uh, that process, and then uh, got kicked out and um, went back to Philly and kind of started... Kicked out of the... Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was a knucklehead. <laughs> So uh, and and James and I used to have quite a few clashes, and um and then you know he just said you know go back to Philly hit you you need to hit the reset button. Was there one thing you did that was the tipping yeah point? I used to you know I was I was dating this girl that lived in Long Beach and I didn't have a car so and this is pre Uber so I used yeah. to use the what was life like uh, no exactly. <laughs> Uh, I used to uh, use the company car service and I had a deal with the general manager of the company where, you know, every week when the bill comes in, um, you know, I'll pay the bill. Uh-huh. But I just need to use the car to get down to Long Beach or whatever. And um, and me and a G- GM had a, a, a battle over something. 
And she just decided to snitch on me and say Troy was using the company. No way, car. she sold you out. She sold me out, and uh, and that was it. That was it. And so you packed your bags. Packed my bags. I'm imagining. You remember, like when Jazzy Jeff would get kicked out of the Fresh Prince's house. Yeah, Uncle Phil would just toss him. It was just that's like, what I'm picturing. It, it was just like that. And so you had no other options. You're like, I got to go home. Except my my landing might have been a little harder. <laughs> there wasn't a soft Beverly yeah, Hills front yard. Exactly. Exactly. The Philadelphia it, it airport. Was, it was cold concrete that, that I landed on. So then you went back to Philly, and then you for, you found yourself, and yeah, you know, you're like, and um, hit the reset button. Yeah, you know what? It just, and I, I went back, and it was a it was a very valuable lesson, you know. And James is you know still a mentor to me. You know, I talked to him day before yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, talk to him all the time. Still a you know huge force in my in is he, my is life. He still out here? Yeah, he's right across the street at Sony. Okay, you know, so um, you know, he and I are still close. Cool. And then uh, when you were working in Philly. You said that, you know, at the Soho house that you had essentially, you had found Biggie Smalls and Puff Daddy, but you were helping people promote their shows. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's overstating that I found Biggie Smalls so and Puff Daddy. your best friend that you discovered. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, to you. It's, a bit, it's a big overstatement. Yeah. I, I was promoting concerts in Philly. Right. And, Isn't uh, it funny how the narrative sometimes just explodes? No, ex- ex- Exactly. Uh, I was promoting concerts in Philly, yeah. and one of the concerts that I was promoting was uh, was big. And, um, it, you know, I was promoting Wu-Tang Clan at that time, oh, nice. Foxy Brown, Notorious B.I.G., uh, Jay-Z and the Rockefeller. This is a little pre-Rockefeller. This is Jay-Z with Foxy Brown. So, um, you know, but I was doing most of the hip-hop shows in Philly. And so what kind of venues were you promoting? Uh, Nightclubs, um, banquet halls, you know, where, wherever we could get, you know, because a lot of places wouldn't take rap shows or whatever. Um, the shows were hard to ensure. And so wherever, whatever venues, we, you know, we could get. But the, the, the show where I really connected with Big and Puff was, uh, it was on the University of Penn campus uh, at the Civic Center. And, um, and Big was a no-show because he was in New York shooting a video and um and they pop you know I got into a huge argument on the telephone with you know Big's manager and he basically told me hey we're on our way down you know we're shooting a video and uh and it's eleven o'clock at night so needless to say they didn't make it down in time uh-huh. and they ended up giving me a refund and um and I asked you know and I got a chance to meet Puff and I asked him I said well what do you, what do you do and he started explaining a lot of people ask me. about Puff that question <laughs> yeah no, no, exactly. <laughs> You know, this at this time, this is pre-Sirac, pre-Sean John, <laughs> pre, pre-everything. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, so we ended up being able to connect, and he, gave, he ended up giving me a job at the company. And you helped him at a club. Yeah, exactly. He said, uh, your first, uh, I said, well, I want to come work for you. He said, your first job is to get me that girl behind the bar. And I ended up uh, getting him the girl from behind the bar. And you were like, I, this is my, my town. This is my party. I know the girl behind the bar. <laughs> exactly. And so... It was interesting, though, because they gave you a refund. Uh-huh. So you could sense that they were good people yeah. that were of like, honor. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, even to this day, you're working with a lot of different types of people. Did, I mean, do you think at a young age you were able to size people up? Yeah, well, you know, I think that's just part of, you know, I think coming from where, where I come from, you know, you better be good at sizing people up. You know, that's just part of, you know, our, you, you come from tough neighborhoods. You got to be able to read a room. You got to be able to read people. You got to be able to sense bad situations. And I think that's just a, a sixth sense that you develop. And, um, you know, so I think part of that is what, you know, is what helped me be able, be able to navigate the business that we're in. And how does event, how does promotions get you to 
the level where you then came back to LA? You know, it, I think a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, being a promoter, I think you're either a good promoter or a bad promoter, you know, it, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not really, I don't think it's, a, it's neutral in that space. And it, it'll, and the, the one thing when you're on the, the end of writing checks for, for people, you know, it was, it's one of those things where, you know, I was one of those promoters where I, I showed people a really good time when they, when they, when they came to the city and but whether I sold the show out or whether nobody showed up, the artists always got paid. Mm-hmm. And I think that went a long way just in terms of being able to build a reputation. Um, I stayed in touch with a lot of the managers and the, and, and the record labels and uh, and people that we worked with and um, and just really built the network. So when I, you know, so by the time I ended up going into management, you know, I knew a lot of you know a, a lot of the people that that you know we were we were doing business with. They were friends with you, or yep. you'd work with them. So then you have a lot of cash in the bank at that point if you're helping to pay people? No. No. You know, <laughs> just show to show. No, it's just it's show to show. And you know, and when I say, you know, writing people checks and, you know, giving people cash, you know, big probably for that show, you know, it's we these were I think Wu Tang's first show that I promoted in Philly, you know, they were twenty five hundred bucks in a sixteen no passenger van. You know, so sixteen passenger van. Yeah, you know, and um so we weren't making a lot of money by by any means. And you know, I had backers and you know, and and, and people who helped me out. So by the time all of the money got split up or whatever, you know, if I had, you know, a thousand bucks in my pocket or a few hundred bucks in my pocket after that show, that means, you know, I was surviving another week or two, you know, to be able to to do it again. And how many years did you do that? That uh I probably promoted shows maybe over between parties and shows that's probably over almost a decade oh wow yeah okay yeah and so you said you were working at death row records when no. tupac died is that no i was working at bad boy bad boy sorry yeah yeah, death yeah. Row. that's yeah no i was working at bad boy when um tupac got shot the yeah. first time not when he died when he got shot in new york city when he got shot in new york what yeah. was that like you know it was um it was an interesting time you know just because you know, I was working with Kirk Burroughs, who was the president of Bad Boy at that at that time, and um, I was Kirk's assistant. And you know, we had this rotating thing, you know, where we used to have to, you know, receptionist goes on break, you go answer the phones, and you know, we would get death threats. You know, it was a lot of security at the, at, at at the building. Um, you know, th- it was a big story that had, had that that had broken at the time. With you know, I, th- I think I remember Big and Pac both being on the cover of Vibe, and I think the the writer was Kevin Powell, and uh, so I, the and guy I, from the Real World. Um, yeah, exactly. And he 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 had written this story that really was the the match on the gasoline that I think really fueled that fire oh, between really? the East Coast and West and West Coast at that time. But you know, it it it, it had gotten re- really heated. And you were living in New York at the time. No, I was. I would. I never. I, I would commute between New York and Philly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so when you you talk about you know you're getting you're in L.A. You you went back home. You rebooted. Like in general, like I had a friend of mine who listens to the podcast, and I said I was interviewing you, and he was curious about your opinion about failure mm-hmm. and how like you go through life. Like it sounds like you had your own company, or you'd work for people as an assistant. You go back and forth. Like what what's it like getting through failure and and really, when you're in the music business, there's no guarantees. Yeah, I, I think in life in general, there, there's there's no guarantees. And I think, it, you know, it, it's failure 
you know, failure is part of, part of life, you know, um, and, and as cliche as, as, as it may sound, you know, it's, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, it, no, no risk, no, no, no reward. And, you know, and, um, you know, we take a risk every time we step out of the door every, you know, every right. single day we get to the office. Yeah. You know, so, so life, life is full of risk and life is full of failures, but at the same time, life is full of triumphs and, you know, and, and happiness. But I think as, as, you know, for a guy who I just know myself and, and I've never been a person who's been, you know, and, who's been comfortable uh, working for other people, you know, so, so where I've always kind of, you know, written my own story and kind of, you know, so, and I, and I've always wanted, I've always had my own ideas that I wanted to explore and things that I wanted to build. And, um, you know, and when I've had to work for other people, you know, when I sold my company the first time, you know, you run into bureaucracy and things like that or whatever. So I would rather take the risk of failure being on my hands and, and me having to, you know, to be responsible for it versus, you know, working for an organization where, you know, um, you know, where I, where I don't reap the rewards if things, if, if things do work out. What was the company that you, the first company? Uh, it was called Sanctuary. Okay. Yeah. And as a promotions company? Uh, no, it was a, a media company out of the UK. Okay. Yeah. And when you met Lady Gaga, was she on a record label? Uh, no, she, she had just gotten dropped from Def Jam at that time. Yeah. Exactly. So she's someone who had been dropped by a label. Mm-hmm. And so then you worked with her and you guys helped build something very big. Yes. What was it like at the very beginning when people, were you getting people to call you back to help with her or were you sort of starting over? No, you know what? Um, so the answer is yes. We, you know, a, a lot yeah. of people were calling us back just because, you know, we have, I've always had great relationships or whatever. But um, but just because they call you back doesn't mean they're going to do what you ask them to right. do. So uh, but, you know, so it's the case with any new artist. It's like, you know, people you got to prove it. To, you got to prove it to people. You know, I was on the phone yesterday. You know, we have a new artist. Uh, Megan Trainer that's on, that's that's signed to our company and you know she's number one Billboard record what, right what now. What kind of music? Uh, pop music. Mm-hmm. You know number one record in the country, number one record you know in a bunch of places around the world. And I'm on the phone with a booker from one of the TV shows yesterday, and he's like, you know, you know, I still want to watch this thing. And I'm, you know, so he's not sold. No, no, but you know, you can have a number one, number one record, you know, hottest, hottest thing. And, you know, you still got to prove yourself. So, you know, and by the way, he's still a buddy of mine and, and, um, and I take no offense to, 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 to it, but you know, it's one of those things where you, it, it, it keeps that fire in your belly when people, you know, continuously want you to prove yourself. And it's like, you know, when you look, I'm a big basketball fan you can win the NBA championship, you know, this year, and you, you're celebrating in the, the locker room and you're drinking champagne and you have a good summer. But when October starts, <laughs> you got to go out and win that. You don't get that championship again next year. You got to win it again. And so that's how we we operate and we look at things. You know, you got to wake up every day wanting to go out and Nothing's win that championship. Nothing's given to you just because you've already Does, had yep, a victory. Yep. So then when you work with Gaga or artists now, like you have a vision around what you want to do. Yeah. How, how much of that is just like, you know, two feet on the floor, like you're 
pounding the pavement, getting after it versus like, okay, there's more of a program that I can fit an artist into. Because Gaga, you're making the template at that point. Yeah. And, and what, you know, the tough thing in, in management is, you know, there, there's no, there's no program. Right. You know, so, so, you know, we can't, we can't pump out products, you know, like, you know, you know, song, songs are, you know, great songs are downloads from God, you know, so it's like, you know, I was listening to a record this morning that John Mayer played me last night in the studio. And he and now I, works with you? Yeah, we, you know, we manage John. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> this record is so fucking good. It's just one of those records that you only hear, you know, every few years, you know? Really? Yeah, like, seriously, it's just one of, those, it's one of those songs that's just so good. And I just listened to it over and over in the studio last night and because I know how hard those records are to come by. And, uh, and you know, you got to be in a special space. You know, uh, for John Legend to write all of me, you got to be in a really special space to, you know, to get those records. And um, so I appreciate when I hear those records I really appreciate when artists that we work with, you know, write those songs and has have access, you know, to that space to be able to to to, to get those songs. So we don't take it for granted, you know. So you know, so once we get them, we feel like you know we have the relationships to go out to call the right people, you know, to be able to get it played on the radio, to be able to get the videos on TV, to be able to get them to perform it on TV. But in terms of a systematic program that we could plug into and make, you know, we don't make iPods and iPhones and, you know, and, and, and you know, and Coca-Colas and things like that or whatever. So it's a, it's a lot harder when, you know, when you're working with, with, with art. So when you get this, you know, epic track that you listen to from John Mayer, like when you hear it, does it just happen naturally? Or do you think like you can get as an artist into that space? I, I think it's a special space that you have to access. Like I think to write a I think to write a, a really good pop song, I think that's a lot easier than writing a song that's just that resonates in people's soul, that people get married to, that people when they break up, that's the song they listen to fifty times. You know, when um you know, th- those songs that you carry for the for, for, for the rest of your life. You know, um What are some songs in your life that are like that? You know, for for me, uh, I, I got I have I have a bunch. You know, it, it's when 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 I listen to "Reasonable Doubt" by Jay Z. That you know, the, the entire album. I know where I was at in my life. I know where I was at in Philly. I know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing with you know Big's album. It's the same thing when I listen to Eric B and Rakim. It's the same thing when I listen to Mary J Blige's first album. And, you know, all the way up to listening to, you know, to, 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 to a Lady Gaga's first album, you know, just because it was, you, you know, it was a, a certain point in my life or listening to Eve's music, you know, and hear, remembering when an artist played me a song for the first time, remembering when John, you know, first played all of me at a piano in a recording studio in New York and, you know, and knowing and really feeling what that record was at that time when he played it. So, you know, you got some records that for me that was about wow, this was a this was coming of age for me. Then some records, you know, from a business standpoint where, oh my God, I remember where I was at in my career and what we were doing in the company at that time when we when we heard that record. And then, you know, th- then there's those timeless records that, you know, that the Luther Vandross record that, you know, that I danced to at my wedding and, you know, thing, you yeah. know, all of those special songs too. 
And so you mentioned Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's done a great job as an entrepreneur. Yes. And he's paved the way. Incredible job. Wu-Tang Clan. They had Wu-Wear. Yes. What do you... And now it's like everyone, like video gamers are, are branded with swag and merchandise. Yes. And YouTubers, you know, they're writing books and everyone's on multiple platforms. Like what, what was it? Like what's it, your opinion on like Jay-Z and Biggie and artists that back then like, there wasn't social media or the internet and they were building these brands that eventually like, you know, Fat Farm and, you know, having Russell Simmons instead of, you know, selling Adidas for Adidas, he's like, I'm going to have my own line of clothing. Yeah. What do you think about that? Just how it's transformed society. Yeah. You know what? Um, and, and, and hip hop, we were entrepreneurs by, you know, we were forced to be entrepreneurs. So, you know, and, and, you know, I think in the beginning, when you look at, you know, the, the early labels and, you know, I was thinking the other day, you know, like Russell would be my great grandfather in terms of lineage, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to. I met him yesterday. Yeah. Well, no. Ru- Nicest Ru- guy in the world. Yeah. No, Russell's fantastic. And he's so he's been so generous just in terms of, um, you know, knowledge, relationships, you know, um, and, and very helpful because when you look at Russell, just for you personally, yeah, and just in general, because when you look at the lineage, you know, um, I worked for I worked for Puff, Puff worked for Andre, Andre worked for Russell, you know. So um, who's Andre? Uh, Andre Harrell. So Andre Harrell was the founder of Uptown Records, where Puffy was an intern, then became vice president of A and R, you know, and then. Uh, Andre fired him and then he was forced to start Bad Boy Entertainment after that. And then, you know, so so it's this lineage of, you know, of of how where where things started. But, you know, starting with Russell, Russell was forced to be an entrepreneur. You know, he couldn't get distribution for rap records back then. You know, these rap records weren't commercial. You know, you had Curtis Blow and he was Curtis Blow's manager and he's shopping this thing around and everything. So, you know, so, it, it you know, we were entrepreneurs by force. And so you alluded to growing up that you maybe you didn't. Did you have much money growing up? No, not 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 at all. Not at all. So you would hustle hustle literally to pay your bills through promoting. Yeah, like for for me, it's so like you're not you know, going to Silicon Valley. Like right now, it's so different with people raising money. Yeah, no, and, and, no. Our our business was completely bootstrapped. You know, so we didn't have VCs. I didn't know what a VC was until probably five years ago. Yeah. You know, so these was companies that you know we and and I think. That that's that's why I understand you know just being scrappy as an right. entrepreneur and kind of working with what right. you what you have and the resources that you have because people weren't investing in those types of businesses. And so when you invest in a startup, like you said this quote before about people sleeping on couches and then overnight their company gets acquired, yeah, and then they become very wealthy and how their parallels in the music industry with like of course it's like you know it's artists you know is that that saying uh struggling artists is 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 real yeah you know so you know because when you're when you're a brand new artist nobody's paying you for concerts nobody's buying your music you know or or anything like that in the beginning you know um you know then you you kind of move to that level of third street promenade where you're kind of singing with you know a, a, a hat out or you're selling cds from the back of your trunk yeah you know um or you're selling music now a tune core and things like that. But, you know, these, these artists are barely making a living. You know, um, the difference is now, you know, in the, in the VC space, you know, uh, in, in the startup space in Silicon Valley, you know, it's, it's, it's not that hard to get funded anymore. If you got, if you got a great, if you got a great idea 
um, and 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 the wherewithal to see to see it through is not that difficult to get at least you know some some angel funding in to be able to get that from con- from concept to 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 uh, to to a product. Mm-hmm. And so, when you invest in companies, how much do you rely on your your instincts that you learned about yourself from hip hop and entrepreneurship at a younger age? You know, I'm I'm married at instinct with um, with a few fil- a few filters. You know, we, you know, it's it's we only invest when there's you know um, we don't lead rounds. We co-invest. You know, um, so it, whether it's Google Ventures, SV Angels, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Sherpa, you know, uh, Menlo, some you know some uh, index. A lot of the, we invest we co-invest with a lot of very very credible firms. So that's our first filter, and you know we piggyback their due diligence, then we do a secondary layer of due diligence, and then from there it's just instinct of whether we understand it, we think it's going to work, and um, and I think that filter has kind of helped our batting average. And so you, you mentioned before uh, that you went to Silicon Valley for about a year, yes, and just like did some research and got to know people. Yeah, how was that? You know, it was it was good. You know, for me, it's just being a, a, a curious person by nature, just spending time with a lot of smart people who were generous with their time, with their information, with relationships. And I think, you know, a lot of people up there, uh, up in the valley, you know, love is a lot of music lovers, you know, and I think they were curious about, you know, our world and, 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 and what we, you know, what we do. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, us landing on uh, us landing on Mars and finding life on Mars uh, and then you know and, and there's water here <laughs> exactly were people enamored by a celebrity uh, you know I think it, I don't you you have some people who were enamored by, by by celebrity then you had some people who were curious about the marketing and how that works and how they c- can incorporate some of the strategies that we use into launching products so you know so it was a lot a lot just as much as i was exploring that world was a lot of people really wanting to understand more about you know what we were doing as a company and then how did it work out did people come up to you like oh we want lady gaga to tweet about this yeah you know what she like this is dumb yeah you know know, but and and that's not the best use of twitter and and, you know anyway you know and uh when you're just kind of tweeting about random products people kind of tune you out and i think that had a lot to do with her success as an artist you know in social media is because she's never been the type that's been on social media uh selling selling bogus things to her fans Mm -hmm. you know and um so i think that had a lot to do with with her being successful there what do you think about people in hollywood that do invest do you feel like people do their due diligence and research or is it more like okay i want to get into the game because there's a lot of money to be made no you know what you have um some really sophisticated guy you know ashton and guy osiri are you know really sophisticated with a grade and they've made some incredible investments you know through through uh you know from twitter to you know uh uber right. you know a lot lots of uh, airbnb a lot of incredible companies uh, Scooter Braun and, and, and his crew have made great investments. Um, Anthony Soleil and Nas, uh, you know, they've been co-investing, uh, you know, with the Andreessen Horowitz guys, making some really great investments. You know, so um, it's, it's some re- it's, you know, it as much, uh, you know, as much smart money as some dumb money, too. But, you know, yeah. but it's it's it's, a, it's becoming people are getting sophisticated in their in their processes. And what type of entrepreneurs and founders of companies do you identify with? I would say I just identify with entrepreneurs in general. It's like, you know, it's it's what I do every single day. We speak the same language, you know. 
We, you know, I, 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 I relate on on a on a on a on a on 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 a soulful level with on on a soul level with entrepreneurs. Just like you doesn't can, matter you what you're building. Connect. Yes, I know what keeps you up at night. You know, I I know what those small victories mean. I know when you take your your, your four person crew <laughs> out for 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 beer. You know, to to celebrate because you pushed product or you fixed a problem or you got that. You know, you got you know first money in. And I, I, I know what those victories feel like. And when you can't make payroll. You know, and got knots in your stomach. You know, I know what those feel like too. So, you know, I got I I, re- I really really relate to to entrepreneurs. So I think that's why you know they've been you know we we kind of we kind of attract them here. Do you see your artists as entrepreneurs? Some of them, yes. It, it's um some of them have you know business ventures and you know and and they're they're looking to you know build outside of just being musicians. And some of them are just pure musicians who only want to focus on ma- making music. So, you know, so but um, but when you look at their businesses in the background, it's like, you know, to build a real touring business and understand the mechanics of it and everything else or whatever. They're the CEOs of, of, of those businesses. People don't understand having moving, a, moving a global tour, you know, all throughout the world with, you know, 30 trucks and 150 people. You know, it's, it's a really big operation. And, you know, and the smart artists are in the middle of that. They're asking questions. They're looking at P&Ls. They're, you know, did you run Gaga's tours? Yeah, I, w- I worked with uh, Arthur Fogel and Live Nation on, on the Gaga tours. What was it like when she got hurt? Didn't you guys have to cancel some dates? Yeah, we uh, yeah we've can't, it's one of those things where it's like you know it's you're, she's a human being you know so people get sick people you know whether it's vocal issues whether you get physically hurt you know you deal with real problems out there on the road and so when you cancel tour dates is that something then you you re you reengage them and come back to the cities yeah sometimes you reschedule sometimes just because of the schedule you you know it's a complete cancellation mm-hmm. but you know. Dealing it happens. With Twenty insurance companies, and you know, it's a lot goes. This is into complicated. It. Yeah, very. So complicated. you're like left brain, right brain, center brain. Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of different brain activity going on because <laughs> you got the artist side, the entrepreneur side. Those worlds are, are melding. And so, what's your day to day like? I just it depends on the day. Outside of drinking at the bar at seven a.m. <laughs> it depends on the day. You know, um, primarily, you know, my 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 day job, night job is art is artist manager. So yeah. you know, so. I think uh, my my primary responsibility is to make sure that my my artists are taken care of. That you know, is that, that your love? Just the it's my love. The it's artists, my, yeah, it's my it's my passion. Is what I get up in the morning ex- excited about, and um, you know, and in the mix of that, you know, we get entrepreneurs who call us asking us to help them solve problems. You know, so um, so my day kind of is, is a mixture between you know, uh, primarily working with our with our artists on you know everything from release strategy, product releases, uh, you know, prop personal issues, you know, to whatever they have going on to, um, you know, to helping our, our, our team solve problems. Cool. Well, I'll let you go, but I have a few, few final questions. One is all these startups are popping up in every city. Someone's listening to this in Kansas City and they think that you'd be a, a perfect investor. How hard is it to reach you? And like, what, what is the best way to reach an investor that you think would be really you know, passionate about your idea. You know what? Um, for for us, it's it, you know most mo- most of the deals, if not all of the deals we we invest in, kind of come through um, other entrepreneurs that that we've invested in already, 
or uh, angel investors or, 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 or VCs. You know, we get a ton of emails and pitch decks and things like that. And, you know, um, if something's interesting, I'll forward it to, you know, um, one of my one of the venture partners here at the company and analysts, you know, to, to, to check it out or whatever. But we typically don't put money in. And, you know, unless there's, you know, we, we kind of go through through our process. And what about as someone who is an artist and a musician? Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much the same thing, but just because we get, uh, you know, we're overwhelmed with, with submissions, so we can't even come close to listening to everything that, that we're sent. And, you know, so, you know, I, I get my sources come from everywhere from the music producers and songwriters we manage, other artists, you know, um, I always laugh because I say, you know, John, John, John Legend signs more clients to Adam Factory than, than any of the managers here, including myself, because, you know, he just, you know, he, he's just that type of guy. Yeah. He, he recommends clients to us. You know, if we're trying to... It's like uh, when you go to J- Jazzy Jeff and you're like stalking him for a year, yeah. right? The artist connection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. So John's been great about about that for us, and um, and then you know we get agents and lawyers recommend things for us, and sometimes managers around here just come across something that that's just great, uh-huh. and we go, and we will go after it. And then for now that you've been on both sides, the entrepreneur, investor, rapper, now you're you know backing musicians. Like, what advice do you have for people? college, high school, that had this dream, whether it's becoming an artist or an entrepreneur, trying to build something on their own, the backs of it, just to like get through the struggle? Like, is there something that you think, you, you alluded to this earlier about just it's part of the processes? Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's, if you're not, you know, I, like, I, and I, I, I see it in a lot of, you know, with people that I work with and interact with or whatever, and um, I just know if, if you're not passionate about something, like completely passionate, like you know, almost to the point where you would rather you you would rather die than not be a part of this and this not be a part of your life and you know and it, and it means that and it means that much to you then you're not going to be willing to make all of the hard sacrifices that that it takes to to accomplish anything great you know um and 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 that's just part of it you know when people give up early I, th- I think that just means that they didn't really want it that bad. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, is developing that that personal, that internal gauge that tells you when it's time to pivot. You know, guess what? I was really passionate about being an artist and wanting to do it, but I really understood when it was time that, you know what, this thing isn't quite for me. I need to pivot. I still want to be in this space and I still love music and I still want to be a part of it. Um, but you know what? I, I think it's time for me to switch gears. And, you know, and I, and I noticed in, the, in some of the great entrepreneurs that we work with, same exact thing. It's like, you know, their company might be going one way and all of a sudden they, they, they make a switch and then all of a sudden they're, they're on fire. And, it's, and we deal with the same thing with artists. It's even sonically, they could, you know, start on a project and all of a sudden it's like, you know what? This sound, this music isn't coming out the way I quite wanted it to. I want to, I, I want to start working with another producer on this on, on this project or whatever. So I think for anybody that's out there, is it, it's it's really having passion, like that fire burning passion about what you really want to do and what you were put, what you really feel like you were put on this earth for. And um and really going after it with, with with all that you have and being able to put on the blinders and you know and mute 
the doubter is out. And so I'd rather die than not have this be in my life. Yeah. Like I want it that bad. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, me personally, that's, that's, that's how I feel, you know, about what I do every day. This is just part of my, my, part of my DNA and part of my purpose. Cool. Actually, I, I used to rap. Oh, nice. I have a YouTube channel. Nice. Because I was, I did it in college uh-huh. in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt. And then all my friends came to my wedding. Uh-huh. So I went back and then all my friends got married. They're like, you got to rap at our wedding. Yeah. <laughs> so I do Rapper's Delight, but then I freestyle. And just oh, make nice. fun of my friends in the crowd. Nice, nice. But I never had any ambitions. <laughs> I didn't need to pivot. No. <laughs> it was already self-actualized that exactly. this is a, it's a hobby. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Good. Thank, you uh, for, thank you for having me. I may me. have to come at 7 a.m. next time. No, exactly. Get here at 6.30. <laughs> You'll have some, have whis- some, and have some whiskey out. <laughs> I'm so ready for that. Cool. Thank you. Uh, no, thank you. That was Troy Carter. It was a very fun interview that... I the backstory is I met him through an event at a local um, club called the Soho House. You may have one in your city. They're in New York, Miami, London, and L.A. And I was invited because I teach with the school here, and I talk about it at the beginning of the podcast. But what really happened was I, I met Troy from the crowd, and he was talking about tech investing. And everyone there wanted to know his perspective on Uber and Lyft and Dropbox and all these big companies. And I raised my hand in the back uh, actually, I was in the front row, and I said, you know, hey, non-tech question, two parts. First one is, what's Biggie Smalls' legacy on hip-hop? And second question is, what was it like working with Biggie Smalls? So I ended up asking him this question, and then we hit it off. He spent five minutes answering, and he talked about personal branding around artists like Biggie and Tupac and, and Jay-Z and how they were really the pioneers for self-branding, like way back in the day. And it resonated because YouTubers and podcasters and self-published authors in the influencer economy definitely have roots in hip-hop. I've always been fascinated by the intersection of hip-hop and entrepreneurship. So I reached out to him and said, hey, Troy, I'd love to get you on the show. And then six weeks later, I went to his office in uh, Los Angeles at the Adam Factory and had a great time where he hosted me in his really cool area. He's got a photo of Obama and... MTV Music Awards and a bunch of like records on the wall. He has a bar, which I allude to, which I think is pretty cool to have in an office. And long story short, it was pretty cool to interview the guy. He's got a lot of success. So now he's on Shark Tank and on ABC regularly with Mark Cuban. So I'm super happy for him. Could not be more than thrilled for all of the success he's had. And obviously, the influencer economy was a big part of that. I'm joking. It was not a big part of it. But he was kind enough to give me his time. So quick update on the book. We're shipping it in February and sending out bulk orders for schools, universities, and businesses. I'm doing webinars and seminars and in-person business trainings. So if you'd like to bulk order the book, feel free to hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com. I'll have the Amazon pre-sale up by the end of November, hoping to do something around Thanksgiving. Maybe Cyber Monday is when I would ideally put up the book launch. But anyway, those are boring details. Have so many great shows coming up. Hank Green, who's the founder of VidCon and started the Vlog Brothers with his brother John Green, is on the show. Derek Sievers, who is uh, one of the greatest minds around how to create a movement, a famous TED Talker, started a CD Baby back in the day, is also on the show. Um, Rishi K, who is the uh, proprietor and host of Song Exploder, one of my favorite podcasts on all of iTunes, which deconstructs songs by famous and well-known artists talking about their songwriting process, is also on the podcast. So tons of great content coming out in the coming weeks. As always, sign up for the email list for extra goodies, exclusive videos, and 
chapters ahead of the book launch. Ryan, Influencer Economy, with more information. Also, if you're on iTunes, please leave a review. We'd love to hear what you think. And finally, if uh, you want to have a Influencer Economy live event, I'm bringing this show on the road. And this spring, I'll be doing a live tour, and I'll also be down at South by Southwest. So connect with me on all those accounts. Anyway, enough about me. Heading over to Duke Siebert's for some chicken in the pot. Oh, oh, oh.